ahead and turn to Mark chapter 13 with me. Mark chapter 13. Last week, we uh, witnessed Jesus' final public confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel, which ultimately set the stage for his betrayal, arrest, his trial, crucifixion, and then his resurrection. Knowing that his earthly ministry was coming to an end, um, Jesus now turned his attention directly to his disciples for some final conversations, some final prep time, if you will, as he prepared them for his um, crucifixion and ultimately his departure and then his resurrection. And so that's where we find ourselves today is him sort of transitioning from that public ministry with the crowds to now more private ministry in these final, final days. Today we come to the what we call the second explanatory section in the Gospel of Mark. We mentioned that um, Mark doesn't focus so much on Jesus' teaching as he does the events of Jesus' life because Mark's purpose in his Gospel is to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Old Testament Messiah, and he's the Son of God. That's his point. And he does that through the series of events that he shares. So he doesn't spend as much time on the teaching of Jesus. Um, I think I'd shown you that when you look at the, if you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you see it's just filled with red. Because Matthew focuses on what Jesus taught. Mark focuses on what Jesus did, so there's not as much red, if we want to say it that way. Well, this is the second place. Uh, it's one of two where Mark does focus on the teaching of Jesus. And it has to do with the end times. In other words, what Jesus' disciples should come to expect between his resurrection and departure, his ascension into heaven, and his return. There's basically three sections in this. We're going to cover two today, and then we're going to cover the third next week. In the first section, he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem. In the second section today, he reveals what or reveals what's to be expected in regard to the timing of that destruction. And then the events that lead up to his return, and then ultimately the end of the age. So we'll cover those two today. And then the third section, which we'll cover next week, he warns his disciples to be ready and to be on alert for his return. So we'll have sort of those three sections, we'll do them in two parts. Let's go ahead and look at the first uh, few verses of chapter 13. I'm going to read these to you, the first four verses. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So they're basically coming out of the temple... As they walk out, one of the disciples remarks to Jesus how amazing these buildings look. The first temple was actually built by Solomon, but it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But after that, they built the second temple. If you remember, at the end of the captivity, the Jews went back with Ezra and others to rebuild the temple. But it was a lesser temple. It was significantly smaller. And that was sort of a disturbing thing for the Jews. Those Jews that knew the former temple now seeing this new temple, were very disappointed in its size and its scope. Well, 
Sometime about 20 BC, King Herod decided to do something about it, so he began this renovation campaign and began to um, add on to the temple. And so by the time that Jesus arose, it was a fairly large temple complex. In fact, it was considered to be probably one of the most impressive sites in the ancient world. It was not just the temple, but it was surrounded by courts and buildings and giant columns. But something else that was kind of interesting about it is that they used these massive stones to build it. These stones were approximately 37 feet long, 8 inches in height, and 12 inches in width. So there were these long you know, stones about this big, but about 37 feet long. And they were these beautiful white marble stones, and then they were decorated with gold. And so it was actually pretty fascinating to see. And even in, in Jesus' day, people marveled at it. They debated it. They talked about it. And so what we find is that as these disciples come out, they're simply following up on that discussion. They're remarking what everybody else had. But look at these. These are amazing. They're admiring the architect and the beauty. The complex was actually so big that it took, about, took up about a sixth of the city of Jerusalem. It's huge. And so they're all looking at it. They're all fairly impressed. And Jesus' response to them is a little bit startling. Because he says, well... Do you see these buildings, these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. In other words, Jesus predicts the destruction of this temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't the first time. Luke chapter 19, Jesus actually warned the religious leaders that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. So it wasn't the first time that he actually described that. The other thing we have to look at here as we see this is the type or the um, totality of the destruction. Notice Jesus says that not a single stone will be left upon another stone. He's talking about the complete and total destruction of the temple. Now we know a little bit later here, and we'll, we'll touch on this, it wasn't just the temple that was going to be destroyed, it was going to be Jerusalem itself. And so what we have here is Jesus describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that's about to take place. Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus for clarification, we see in verses 3 through 4. They ask him basically, according to Mark here, when will these things be? Meaning the destruction of the temple. But then they add something else. What will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, if you combine the three synoptic gospels together, what you find is that there's some more details that Mark sort of leaves out. And there's debate as to whether or not the disciples asked... um, Two questions or three questions? I think they asked primarily two questions. The first one is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And the second is, what's going to be the sign of your return and the end of the age? So they asked specifically, when's this temple going to be destroyed and what sign should we look for? And they used a singular sign. But the thing is, they kind of combined them. In the disciples' mind, they thought that the destruction of the temple, the return of Jesus... And the end of the age, meaning bringing in the kingdom of God, would all happen at exactly the same time. That was their perspective. And so basically what they're asking Jesus is, all right, when's this going to happen? Give us an indication as to the time, and then what should we look for, is what they're asking. So Jesus is now going to provide the details for that. Now I had to debate quite a bit with myself as I went through this, because Jesus is going to talk about the end times. And it's a huge subject, folks. There's actually a category in theology called eschatology, which is basically the breadth of the end times. It's everything involved with the end times. And it's overwhelming. Um, Some guys, like Pastor Jim, that's their life's work. 
just eschatology, you know. That is not my life's work. It's not an area of expertise on my part. I have a fairly good handle on eschatology, but it's like anything else. Oftentimes with theologians, they have a tendency to focus on one particular area or another. You know, Pastor Ed DeZagle, um, his focus is sort of on um, um, homardiology, which is the study of the spirit. Pastor Jim spends an awful lot of time on eschatology. Um, So, I'm going to warn you that I'm not going to give you the date and time that Jesus is coming back today. We can have Pastor Jim do it. No, he won't do that either. Okay? Do my best to walk us through it. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on the imperatives in the text because that, I think, is the focus of Jesus. This text here is filled with imperatives, commands. And they actually form the outline, if you will, for what Jesus is going to do. So, while we may be fascinated with all the details of exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, if we focus on that, we miss the point. Because the point is, all the details are simply given so that we might be prepared. So our focus shouldn't be so much on the details and trying to figure out every little nuance, but rather, what should we be looking for? How will we know? And so I'm going to focus on these imperatives. The first imperative actually comes in verses 5 and 6. Go ahead and read that with me. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. So the first imperative here is, See to it that no one misleads you. In other words, don't be deceived. But specifically about what? Well, Jesus says, There's going to be plenty of people that are going to come and say that they're me. We'll call these the false Christ. Now what's fascinating about this is almost immediately after Jesus' re- Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we began to see people appear that claim to be Jesus Christ. In fact, we have the names of two of them from just a couple of decades after Jesus. The first one was a guy named Simon Magus. Simon Magus was a Samaritan who claimed that he was Christ and called himself the Standing One. This was just a couple of decades after Jesus had risen from the dead. Another one, another Samaritan, Dosithaos. Theos, coming from the Greek word God, was another individual. He claimed he was Christ. He tried to convince the Samaritans that he was a fulfillment of Moses' prophecies right out of Deuteronomy. And so we know the names of at least two of these individuals that came on the scene shortly after Jesus and said, I'm Jesus, I've returned. Jesus said, Don't be deceived. I thought this was rather interesting, just doing a simple WikiLeaks search. Or not WikiLeaks, but Wikipedia search. They list over a hundred known religious leaders since the time of Christ that have claimed to be Christ. And that's just Wikipedia. There have been plenty of others that haven't been famous enough to show up in the literature. But people have been claiming to be the return of Christ in every single generation in history since Christ disappeared and went back to be with his father. And Jesus said, don't be deceived. In fact, elsewhere he says, when you, when you hear that I'm out in the wilderness, don't go, because I'm not there. I've seen a number of these in my own lifetime. The Heaven's Gate cult and other things some of you may remember. Um, David Koresh. Any of those names ring a bell? Some of you might not be old enough. These are cult leaders claiming to be Christ. The Jonestown Massacre. Um, All individuals. Charles Manson. All claiming to be Christ in some form or fashion. 
So the first imperative Jesus said is, there's going to be some people saying they're me that have come back, but don't, don't believe it. It's not me. Don't be deceived. Sad news is, Jesus does say here that many, many will be led astray. That's unfortunate. In fact, Paul even prophesies that a time will come in the church where there will be an apostasy, a turning away. I believe that that will likely happen because some will be following one they think is likely the return of Christ. Maybe the Antichrist himself, that some may perceive to be him. The second imperative, look at verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. So the second imperative, he says, is to not be frightened. Now, I don't know that that's the best translation. Most of your translations probably say something like, don't be alarmed. Because the word actually has a lot more to do with being shocked or surprised than it does frightened or being afraid. And so basically what Jesus does, he says, okay, now you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear about earthquakes and famine. You'll hear all kinds of things that are going around in culture and society among you, including some natural disasters, including things like wars and rumors of wars. We've clearly, obviously seen that, have we not? There have been some nasty, nasty wars, including World War I and World War II and others that have been significant. And Jesus says, you'll hear these things, but don't be alarmed by them, don't be frightened by them. Why would he say that? Well, partly because, and we do this, this must be the end. Things have gotten so bad, it must be the end. Can you imagine? Because they are very frightening. But Jesus says... Well, don't be alarmed. He says these things must take place. They're part of God's ultimate plan. He also goes on to say it is not the end yet. So even though you see these things, don't be fooled. It's not the end. Instead, he says it's merely the beginnings of birth pains. Now, what's the, what's the symbolism he's using there? It's obviously birth, right? Birth pains? They come before, when Amy had Kimberly, we got rushed to the hospital because um, the baby was coming sooner than we expected, and they induced Amy. Um, Kimberly was about eight weeks underdeveloped, I think six weeks early. Um, But they said she probably had stopped growing about two weeks before that. She was three and a half pounds. And um, I think that's right, isn't it? Three and a half pounds? Um, So fairly small. When they were trying to debate, do we take the baby out to save mom at this point and baby, or do we kind of leave the baby in to do a little bit more baking because her lungs aren't developed? So they induced Amy. They pumped her full of all these steroids to try to develop the lungs right away, and then they tried to induce labor. And so for 30 hours, Amy suffered birth pains until we discovered that that baby was not coming out that way and needed a different method. So we had to have... Um, a C-section, and and finally Kimberly was born. But there were things that Amy was going through. Her body was going through the birth pangs. Those things all lead up to birth. But it's not the birth yet, is it? And so Jesus said, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, all of those things, as bad as it could get, are simply the beginnings. And so he tells them not to be alarmed, not to be frightened. The third imperative, look at verses 9 and following. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now I want you to jump down to verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. 
and child will rise against his parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this third imperative here, be on your guard, is because Jesus expected his disciples to face serious persecution. That's what he describes here. Standing before governors and kings, being arrested, being tried, brother betraying brother, children betraying their parents to the point of death, the fact that the world will actually hate Jesus' disciples because of him, he says that's coming. And so the third imperative to them is that they would be on alert for that, understand that. Some interesting things about that, the persecution, Jesus said, was to serve as a testimony before world leaders. Isn't it interesting? The fact that they're testimony, their persecution would lead them to be able to testify before leaders. I, I had an interesting thought the other day. You know the, um, what's his name, Jack? I can't think of his last name off the top of my head. Master Cake, or Masterpiece Cakes. Do you remember the name? Yeah. It's the guy that didn't make the, the wedding cake for the two gay gentlemen, and so he got sued and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in his favor to some degree. Then he got sued again by the city. Well, now he's getting sued a third time because he won't make a cake for a lesbian transitioning to transgender. Exactly. We know exactly. Exactly. It's just a setup is what it is. But um, what's been interesting is the testimony that man has had on a national scale because of this. Is that not true? Everybody knows about it for the most part. It's all over the news. The tester, the, the persecution, Jesus said, would lead to the ability for Christians to speak to world leaders and to have a national platform and a national stage. So there's an upside to it is what he's saying. He said it would be used to preach the gospel to all the nations. What that tells me is that without the persecution, the gospel would not spread to all the nations. That in order for the gospel to be preached to all nations, it must involve persecution. Now that might not make us feel comfortable, but that's what Jesus is saying. He said some will be killed, But he says those who endure to the end, probably meaning the end of the age, the end of the persecution, will be saved or rescued at the time of Christ's return. So basically what he's saying is there will be some who will face this serious persecution. Some will be killed, but some will live through it and will make it to the end when Jesus raptures the church and takes them home. We'll deal with that in a little bit here. The fourth imperative, look at verse 11. We're going to jump back up. I noticed I skipped over that as I read it. That's the fourth imperative. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. So the fourth imperative here is, don't worry. Don't worry. The reason is, he says, when you are arrested, you will be given what to speak by the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. This is God's revelation, is it not? We talk about inspiration of the scripture, that this is God-breathed. Well, God breathes, if you will, through the prophets as well. And what he promises here is that when arrested during the time of persecution and you are given an opportunity to testify about your faith, you may say, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know if I'll have the strength to stand up. I don't know if I'll be able to take it. And he says, don't worry about it. I'll speak through you. I will give you divine revelation what to speak. What's fascinating to me about this is I've talked about the persecution in China. Um, We'll touch on this in a little bit here, but persecution in China is increasing pretty substantially. 
And um, there was a church not too long ago um, called the Later Rains Church. A bunch of, I think, a hundred of their leaders and, and others in the church were arrested, including the pastor. And um, he was taken in and, and abused and beaten. And after he was released, he had sent a letter out describing what had happened and about the abuse that he had faced. And, and um, what was fascinating about it is in the letter afterwards that he wrote, he stated, I don't want to go through that again. Nobody would. But when I was there, I wasn't afraid. God told me what to say. I gave my testimony. I continued to be strong. And so it was interesting because here's this dilemma. I was there. I don't want to go through that again. But when I was there, God did everything he promised to do and sustained me through it. When I think you've got Peter, who ran away from Christ, who said, I will die for you, but then, just at the arrest of Jesus, doesn't have the strength to stand up, and instead flees, but then ultimately is crucified upside down for the sake of Christ? Something happened there. God must have done exactly what Jesus promised here. Each one of the apostles, as they were martyred for their faith, somehow had the ability to stand up and to give testimony and to be murdered for their faith. These are the same dudes that ran away when Jesus was arrested. But somehow, when push came to shove, they didn't run away. Why? Because Jesus says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. He will be your strength, he will be your voice, that you might be a testimony before world leaders. So that's the third or the fourth imperative. Verses 5 through 13, what we just worked through, I believe serve as a summary of what the disciples of Christ are to expect between the time of Christ's ascension and his return at the end of the age. Matthew's account, if you want to go ahead and just turn there with me real briefly, we're going to look at one verse. Matthew's account, I think, makes this pretty clear. Because at the end of this section, Jesus has more to say, but at the end of what he just said, Matthew records this, Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then what does he say? And then the end will come. In other words, everything prior to that is a summary of what the disciples were to expect before the return of Christ in the end of the age. Remember, the apostles asked him, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign that we will look for for your return and the end of the age? And we see in Matthew that Jesus says, all of these things will happen before the end of the age, before I return. And so it serves as a summary. We're going to come back to this in a second. Don't get lost yet. I know you're already thinking in your mind, hmm, what are we going to face? Jesus now, at this point, moves on to answer, in some some respects, the second part of that question. He's already told them when, to some degree. He didn't give them an exact date and time. But he says, it'll happen when all of these things have have come to pass. That's the when. But they also asked him, well, what sign should we look for to tell us you've returned 
And it's the end of the age. In other words, the, the end of this age moving into the kingdom of God, whether that be the millennial kingdom or, or, or whatnot. And Jesus basically then is going to tell them what to look for. Verses 14 through seven, or 27 is where we're camping right now. The first sign, I think there's two here that he gives primarily. The first sign is something he calls the abomination, abomination of desolation. Look at verse 14 of Mark chapter 13 again. Chapter 4, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in and get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So what does Jesus do here? He gives them a sign. He refers to something called the abomination of desolation. That's from Daniel chapter 9. Why don't you turn there with me? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel mentions the desolation, or the um, abomination of desolation, four times. But the most prominent is Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of that week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's the phrase there. Even until complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I want you to jump now to chapter chapter 12, verse 11. Daniel records this. From the time that the regular sacrifice in the temple is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. What do we basically have here? I'm going to have to summarize this for you. But what Daniel prophesies is ultimately a time during the, the, um, the very end times when the Antichrist is on the earth. And he basically prophesies this, this instance where the Antichrist will set up an abomination in the temple. He will put an end to sacrifices in the temple and will establish a false idol of some kind, make a a, um, wicked sacrifice, if you will. And that's what's being referred to here. 
Jesus references that and tells the disciples, when you see this, know that I'm literally right at the door. But most significantly, when you see that, recognize that Jerusalem's destruction is at hand. In other words, the sign he mentions here, the abomination of desolation, is first and foremost about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Because that's what he initially was addressing, right? They said, huh, you just said the temple's going to be destroyed. When is that going to be, Jesus? He's just answered that. It's going to be destroyed when you see the abomination of desolation take place. Now, what's interesting about that is there was a time about 150 or 160 B.C. where it looks like that, in some respects, was partially fulfilled. There's also a time in A.D. 70 where it looks like it was partially fulfilled as well. But then there's also a future time in the book of Revelation where it appears it will ultimately be fulfilled. And so what we have here is a prophecy that has, in some respects, a final fulfillment in two foreshadowings. In other words, events that look very much like it, which are supposed to foreshadow the ultimate fulfillment. So basically, Jesus tells them, when you see this, flee Jerusalem because it will initiate a tremendous time of tribulation. And he says here in verse 19 that it will be a time of tribulation like no other time in history and none before it. Now, we have to be a little careful with that. I am a literalist, meaning if you can take something literally, you take it literally. The problem is with this phrase that is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe things that were just really, really, really bad, but not necessarily never going to be repeated. So we have to be a little careful with this phrase. When Jesus said it's going to be a time that's so bad it's never happened before and it'll never happen again, it's, it's a form of, it's a, it's a form of um, hyperbole to describe a really, really, really bad time. It doesn't mean that it won't happen again. It just means it'll happen again maybe in a different way. Now some struggle with that. But again, the evidence in the scriptures, the same phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, refer to times um, that aren't quite as bad as what Jesus is describing now and aren't as clearly as bad as what we define in the book of Revelation. The stuff in the book of Revelation is pretty horrific. So Jesus is basically saying that when this happens, there will be a tremendous time of tribulation and difficulty, so much so that you should run away from Jerusalem. If you're outside Jerusalem in the field, you shouldn't go back. And even with that, Jesus says, when this happens, it's still not the end. The disciples thought that the destruction of the temple would indicate Christ's return and the end of the age. And what Jesus says is, still not. I think part of the reason for that is because Jesus is probably foreshadowing the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70 and then looking forward to the time during the tribulation period at the end, where it's the middle of a seven-year period where the temple is destroyed, but Christ doesn't ultimately come back for a second coming until the end of that. And so he, again, tells them it's not quite the end yet. But this first sign here is that they're to look for the abomination of desolation and then flee Jerusalem. The second sign, he says, is that they're to look for cosmic disturbances in the sky. And the sign of Christ himself appearing. Look at verses 24 through 27 of chapter 13. 24 through 27. But in those days after this tribulation time, 
time he just described with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, he said, After that, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So what Jesus says here is, you wanted a sign of when I'm going to return in the end of the age? It's when you see me coming in the clouds, when you see the cosmic disturbances. Now, similar to the phrase above about no time like this in the past or in the future, this phrase about the sun, the stars, and all that is used in a symbolic sense in the Old Testament when it comes to the destruction of nations and other things. I believe that what we probably have in this is sometimes this phrase is used to refer to destructions of countries and and devastation, much like they're going to see in Jerusalem in AD 70. But it doesn't mean that there won't literally be, in the ultimate fulfillment of this, literal cosmic changes, the sun going dark. We see that in the book of Revelation. And so in some respects you have, again, a, a sort of a, some foreshadowing where we're not to take it quite literally in the first instance, but take it literally in the second instance. And the reason I say that is because, again, in the Old Testament, this phrase about the sun not giving its light and other things is used sometimes to refer to the destruction of countries in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that the sun literally went black or that the stars literally fell from the sky. It's a way to describe the destruction of countries, God's judgment on those countries. But again, that doesn't mean that that won't literally happen when it's ultimately fulfilled in the book of Revelation. I believe there will be cosmic signs when Christ returns. So what do we do do with this? How do we understand this? Well, when we look at this, I believe that we have two options for this. This is either referring to the rapture of the church or it's referring to Jesus' second coming. There are many scholars who say this is referring to Jesus' second coming right before he establishes the millennial kingdom. Okay? I think he's referring to the rapture here, and there's a number of reasons why. The first one is that the way that he describes it with him coming on the clouds with glory is described elsewhere to refer to his rapture. It's also this discussion, this this, uh, gathering of his elect from the corners of the earth would better represent what we understand to be the rapture where he gathers us up and changes us in the blink of an eye. So we've got, I think, at least that going for us in terms of is it the rapture or is it uh, this second coming? I don't know where all of you are at with your eschatology, but Jesus' return is described as coming in two phases, if you will. The rapture of the church, which is where he rescues the saints. But then the second coming, where he actually comes and stays permanently and establishes the millennial kingdom. So what you ultimately have is much like the first coming, the Old Testament did not make it abundantly clear that Jesus would come first as a baby and then go up to his father for, at this point, 2,000 years, only to return a second time. It simply prophesies a Messiah coming. When Jesus came, we realized, oh, it come, he comes in two stages. It's very similar when it comes to Jesus' return. The scriptures describe it as a twofold event, separated by a very short period of time. His rapturing of the saints, which is where he appears in the sky and takes us to be with him, but he doesn't stick around. We go up and celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. However, he then returns with his saints and stays permanently 
and establishes the millennial kingdom and then goes off into eternity with the new heavens and a new earth. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking at. So that's why with this, we kind of have to determine, is this the rapture he's talking about or is this that second return with the saints? I think since he describes here coming and gathering the elect and not coming back with the elect, it's probably a reference to the rapture. question is, as we sort of put this all together right now, what are we looking at? What does this actually mean? In Luke chapter 21, as he describes this, he says that when this happens, the saints are to look up because their redemption is drawing near. But elsewhere in the Gospels, It says that the world will see this event happen and will mourn. When you go into the book of Revelation, what you find is that right between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, you have some very similar language where it says that the the nations see and recognize that God's wrath is about ready to be poured onto the earth. And they mourn because of that. And so when you sort of put all these pieces together, I believe that what we're talking about here is Jesus is telling the disciples to look for the sign of his coming in the heavens because he's referencing the rapture of the church. That that's what we should be looking towards. Now, as we've marched through this, I'm sure your minds are probably wondering, what does this actually mean? How does it apply to us? Well, as I said, verses 5 through 13 are a summary of what the church, the disciples of Jesus, should expect. It includes things like false prophets coming in his name, claiming to be him. It includes wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters like earthquakes earthquakes and famines. It also includes serious persecution of the saints, for some even death. All the apostles except for John were martyred for their faith. So every one of these individuals that was listening to Jesus were persecuted because of their faith. It came true for them. The only one that wasn't martyred was John, but he got stuck on an island by himself. A penal colony called Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. The first 300 years of the church were a time of severe, unrelenting persecution by the Roman Empire. There are stories of Nero using Christians, putting them on stakes and lighting them on fire to light his walkways. That was pretty much the existence of the church for the first 300 years. Serious persecution. That persecution has been a part of every single generation in Christian history. There's not been a generation in Christianity that hasn't suffered serious persecution somewhere at some time even continues to this day. There's a report that just came out this year, actually, by the British Foreign Secretary, a guy by the name of Jeremy Hunt, where he discovered or claims that Christians are the most persecuted group in the world today. Out of all the world religions, Christianity is more persecuted than any other single religion in the world. According to the report, not only has Christian persecution spread more geographically, which means to more regions of the earth, It's spread into areas that weren't persecuted before where they are being persecuted today. 
the level and severity of persecution has also increased substantially. The report concluded that anti-Christian persecution is now at, and these are their, his words, genocidal levels. You know what genocide is? It's wiping out complete groups of people. Think about the Holocaust with the Jews. It was genocide. The genocidal levels that he determined were actually something established by the UN. It's not a Christian's definition of genocide. So by UN standards right now, Christianity is involved with genocide being completely wiped out. In fact, he claimed that in some parts of the world, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, northern Nigeria, and the Philippines, he fully expects that Christianity will be completely wiped out in the next decade or two. Completely eradicated. Think of, think of Iraq. There were more Christians in Iraq before we took out Saddam Hussein than there are today because they've been run out. In the past few years, we've seen the governments of the largest countries in the world, one of them China, 1.4 billion people in China. China has actually declared publicly that their goal is to eradicate Christianity from their country. That's their words, not ours. They've destroyed thousands of churches, arrested hundreds of thousands of Christians. Now they're also persecuting Muslims. But that's their goal to completely eradicate Christianity from their continent. The second largest country in the world, India, is now considered to be, I think it's ranked number 10 on Open Door's list of most persecuted countries. So the two largest countries in the world, making up two, almost three billion people out of the seven billion people on the earth, almost half, are trying to wipe out Christianity. Read an article this morning about a young lady who from Nigeria, which is one of them listed here by the UN or by um, this guy from Great Britain. She had become a Christian. Her dad has now been chasing her around, trying to murder her. He's come out publicly and said that he's willing to go to jail. Just one small example, but the reality of it is, Christians are per- being persecuted more now today than ever in church history. And it continues to get worse. And that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. So there'd be false prophets, natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, intense, serious persecution. We even see that here in the United States, don't we? How much longer do you think we have here in the United States where we will have the freedoms that we do? There's been a pastor that was just arrested up in Canada a couple of weeks ago. Um, doing some street preaching. He was arrested because um, the area he was preaching has a high homosexual population. His sermon was loving and gracious and kind. didn't matter because it was hate speech. We see what's going on here in the United States where there's a growing intolerance for anything we stand for. Don't want to be the bearer of bad news. Don't want to be a cosmic killjoy this morning, but it's coming here, folks. Jesus says, don't be alarmed, don't be shocked. But he also said, I'm not quite there yet. So it's not quite the end yet, simply because you see persecution. So I know what you're thinking right now. You want to know, does this mean that the church is going to be here when the Antichrist is here and the Great Tribulation and all that kind of stuff going on? Um, There's obviously a a pretty substantial debate um, 
As you put these pieces together, you know, Jesus prophesies all these things, including severe persecution, including the abomination of desolation, that will all take place, he says, um, to this generation. I think we have to take it that way. Um, So there's debate among good Bible scholars to exactly the timing of when Jesus is going to maybe return and do we get taken out of here before the Antichrist comes or not or do we have to go through the tribulation period and and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'll I'll be real frank. Um, I've always been sort of pre-trib, meaning I believe that um, the Lord will come back and rapture the church before this, what's referred to as a seven-year tribulation period. I don't necessarily hold to that position anymore um, because, as I've said before, I'm a literalist. You guys know me from how I handle the scriptures. The one thing we can say absolutely for sure is that the rapture happens before the wrath of God gets poured out. That's absolutely clear. Where the debate is, is when does that start? In other words, does it start with the first seal when Jesus opens that first seal in the book of Revelation or does it happen somewhere else? If you go and you study the context of that, it's not clear if the first six seals that Jesus is opening up, things like famine and wars, what Jesus talked about here, if that's God's wrath against the earth, or if it's simply um, God controlling aspects related to the time of the Antichrist, when the persecution is happening and taking peace off the earth and other things. What's really abundantly clear, if you, if you look into the book of Revelation, between that sixth and seventh seal, it's between that point where the earth says, oh no, God's wrath is going to be poured out, and it's the first time God's wrath is mentioned. And then there's a little 30-minute period of silence in the heavens, which always comes before God's judgment. And then clearly from the seventh seal all the way through the rest of the book, it's all indicated as God's wrath. And so I'm probably at this place in in my understanding of theology that I know Christ is going to return and rapture the church before God pours out his wrath. That's abundantly clear. And Jesus has promised us that. What I'm not so sure about is how much of the difficult times we'll have to endure before that happens. Some argue, well, we're not going to face any of it. I think that's a very Americanized Christian worldview. Tell that to the people in North Korea, the 80,000 people that are being beaten daily because they're Christians and they're in internment camps. Tell that to this little woman that's now our little girl who's running away from her dad. Tell that to the Chinese Christians who are being beaten and abused. Tell that to the Christian church for the first 300 years who were being lit up and set on fire. So I can't answer the question for you specifically related to that. What I can say is that we will be taken away by Christ before God pours out his wrath at the end of time. So what about these signs that Jesus pointed out to us? Well, here's what's interesting. Both Daniel and Jesus' prophecies related to this, when he says they're supposed to look for this abomination of desolation, I think he was serious. I think he was telling his disciples, look for this, it's going to happen in your lifetime. He does say, all these things will happen before this generation disappears. Well, in AD 70, the Romans came in and ransacked Jerusalem because the Jews had rebelled, especially a group called the Zealots. They were sick of the oppression of Rome. And so they basically took over the city, and Rome wasn't happy with that. And so Rome sieged the city for about four years, which caused a tremendous amount of famine, so much so that women were eating their children after they were born. Josephus documents that. That's how serious the famine was. People lost their minds. When the Romans finally came in, in AD 70 and destroyed Rome, they killed 1.1 million Jews in the city. There was so much blood in the city that it literally ran in the streets like water, Josephus records. It was horrific. 
a horrific time, like none ever seen before in Israel, and none ever again in some respects in, in, in that. So what Jesus prophesies here had an immediate fulfillment with the disciples then. They saw and witnessed Jerusalem get destroyed. It was fulfilled for them. The problem is there's some things about Daniel's prophecy and what Jesus says that didn't quite come true in AD 70. Why? Because they are still future. It's this idea of double fulfillment. The first one is a foreshadowing of the real one to come and just gives a glimpse as to what it will be like. And so there's still a future time when... um, the Antichrist will set up an abomination of desolation in the temple, will put an end to sacrifices, and destroy Jerusalem once again. What's interesting about this is the way that Josephus describes the destruction in, in uh, Jerusalem in AD 70 was that no stone was left on top of another, exactly as Jesus said it would happen. So what are we supposed to do with this? Let me wrap up with this. All of these things that Jesus told his disciples to look for happened in their lifetimes. The persecution and everything else. But, they're also happening today. So again, it was a summary of what to expect. And Jesus said throughout there, don't be surprised, don't be shocked, don't be deceived. And the one thing specifically, actually two things specifically, that he gives us to look forward to, is sometime in the future, the destruction of Jerusalem again will happen. If we're still alive, we'll see it. But not only that, but he says, look for my sign. You will not be able to mistake that. And that's actually backed up elsewhere in scriptures. Let me read this to you. Titus chapter 2, Paul encouraged Titus, deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul tells Titus, what you ought to be looking for, Titus, is Christ coming in the sky, the glorious appearing. Paul reminded Timothy to continue to preach the word, to focus on things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He told him to fight the good fight, but then he also tells him to do that until one thing, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He actually wrote to Timothy a second time in 2 Timothy 2.4, reminded him that God will reward all those who have loved his appearing. What's the point here? The scriptures continue to tell Christians what we ought to be looking for is the appearing of Christ. So, with everything else, famines, wars, persecution, no matter how bad that stuff gets, and for some Christians, it's really, really bad. For others, like us right now, not so much. But he said, no matter how bad things get, what we ought to be looking toward is the appearing. Next week, we'll look at how Jesus wraps this discussion up, and it's all about, so be ready. Live your lives in a way that makes you ready. So what does that mean for us? We could face some serious persecution, folks. We may not. But we may very well. But regardless, we can't focus as much on the little details of the timing as much as we focus on knowing what to look for. And what we're to look for is the coming of Christ to rapture his church.